I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. In light of tonight's subject, I thought I'd mention something a little bit personal. Uh, last couple of years, people have been watching this, and they've been noticing I'm losing weight, and there's a little alarm going on that I'm wasting weight like Steve Jobs. Uh, there's some indications that's not the case. Uh, <laughs> I have lost about 30 pounds over the last two years, and it correlates with going twice a week to CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of strenuous and there's a lot of Olympic free weight so I can deadlift 190 pounds <laughs> that weight is going up and my body weight is leveled off I went to the doctor last month had a full physical, full blood workup flying colors across the board so I'm old scrawny and healthy. <laughs> For now. So if you're lucky enough to get old, there are a few kind of surprising benefits that come with that. Uh, one of them is you get accustomed to the idea of dying. And you've probably seen your parents go, uh, your cohort starts to thin out. You've seen friends fade and die. In many cases, leave a crater of grief in the family behind them. And you become acquainted with the details of mortality. And you get interested in learning that there are people who really know the stuff that goes on around, the whole process that goes on around end of life. And one of the very best of those is the speaker tonight, Frank Ostraseski. Uh, we'll start with a video of his and then the man. Talk to you soon. Life and death are a package deal. You can't pull them apart. We cannot be truly alive without maintaining an awareness of death. Death is not waiting for us at the end of a long road. Death is always with us in the marrow of every passing moment. She's the secret teacher hiding in plain sight. She helps us to discover what matters most. And the good news is we don't have to wait until the end of our lives to realize the wisdom death has to offer. Over the past 30 years, I've sat on the precipice of death with a few thousand people. Some of them came to their deaths full of disappointment. Others blossomed and stepped through that door full of wonder. What made the difference was the willingness to gradually live into the deeper dimensions of what it means to be human. All of them were my teachers. These people invited me in to the most vulnerable moments of their lives and they made it possible for me to get up close and personal with death. 
And in the process, they taught me how to live. Here we are. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for a generous introduction and for the kind invitation to be part of the Long Now seminars. We love this series, right? I mean, we just, yeah. Yeah, well, because we wrestle with the big questions, right? We, we, we face the really complex questions of our lives, the big issues of our day. And, and there's no issue that's more important or, you know, more complex or more mysterious than our own death. To imagine that at the time of our death, we will have the physical strength, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime is an absurd gamble. The time for that conversation is now. John Underwood is a wonderful guy. He, he's the person who inspired the whole death cafe movement that you've heard about. And uh, he said something beautiful. He said, we've outsourced discussions about death to doctors and nurses, priests and undertakers. The result is that we've lost control of one of the most significant events that we will ever have to face. In the past few decades, we've grown this big distance between us and death. You know, we've made caring for the dying unnecessarily complex. We've come to describe this remarkably intimate activity of caring for one another as a burden or a task or an obligation or a duty. I mean, how did we get there? Yeah? We've so professionalized it, so mystified the dying process and the care of the dying that we've come to doubt our innate wisdom. We've come to question our innate capacity to do this. But we can do this. This is in our bones. We've been doing this for thousands of years with each other. Dying is not predominantly a medical event. And we need to stop treating it as if it were. We need to bring the best of what medicine has to offer to the care of the dying, but the experience of dying, it's too profound to be fit into the medical model. It's too expansive to fit into any model, including most religious models. The encounter with death, it opens us to the deepest dimensions of our humanity. In this culture, we, we, we tend to talk about death as making the best of a bad situation. Yeah? That's how we talk about it with each other. And when we do that, we devalue dying and the people that are going through it. In absence of a more meaningful conversation, too many people, I think, in our culture are dying in fear and despair. And I think we can do something about that. You know, we talk about America as being a death-denying culture, but... It's not my experience, actually. My experience is they were hungry to talk about death. We just don't know how, or we need someone to talk with about it who's not so frightened of the subject. 
That's why we have death cafes. We have this brilliant idea that Michael Hebe created up in Seattle called Death Over Dinner. It's a fantastic idea. We have Monday nights in San Francisco where we come to the Jazz Center to talk about this. We're hungry to talk about this. We want to talk about this. We're not death denying. Look, the whole world is running in the other direction, running away from this subject. But for one reason or another, you've all come here tonight. And I want to applaud you for that. You've come and turned face to face with the very subject everybody else wants to run away from. Why? How come? So tonight, I want to think about our time together as not so much introducing a bunch of new ideas, but rather remembering, in a way, what we've forgotten. And because we forgot, we became frightened. So rather than providing answers or, you know, telling you about the seven steps to a good death, you know, I want to kind of extend an invitation, five invitations actually, to sit down with death, to have a cup of tea with her, to get to know her really well and find out what she has to offer us about living a more meaningful and loving life. In my experience, when we keep death very close at hand, like at our fingertips, you know, what happens is we don't hold on so tightly. We let go a little more easily. And maybe we don't take ourselves or ideas so seriously. And I think what happens is we're kinder to one another. We understand that death comes to all of us, and so we're all in the boat together. And I think the reflection on death causes us to be more responsible in our relationships with ourselves and each other, with the planet, with our future. A life that doesn't include death, it's only half a life. Yeah? So, look, I, I'm not romantic about dying. This is the hardest work you will ever do. I don't have any woo-woo California ideas about dying. <laughs> this is tough. And it's, it's, it's sad, and it's messy, and it's cruel, and it's beautiful sometimes and mysterious. But above all that, it's normal. It's ordinary. Every one of us are going to go through this process. Nobody gets out of here alive. Yeah? I mean, maybe tonight, but I, I'm not making any guarantees. <laughs> Look, over the last 30 or so years, I've sat with a lot of people, sat on the precipice of death many, many times with people. And most of them were ordinary folks, people like you and I coming to terms with something that they imagined was unbearable. And yet they found within themselves, frequently, and within the process of dying, the resources, the, the strength, the courage, the compassion to meet the impossible in extraordinary ways. That regularly happens. I helped to found a project here in San Francisco called the Zen Hospice Project. 
it was the first Buddhist hospice in America, and we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we made it up as we went along. But I thought there was this natural match between people who were cultivating what I might call the listening mind or the listening heart in meditation and people who needed to be heard at least once in their lives, people who were dying. And so we just put them together. That's, that was as much of a plan as we had. And in the beginning, most of the people we worked with, they lived on the streets just outside here <laughs> or in Tenderloin hotels, you know. I changed a lot of diapers on park benches behind City Hall. And these folks were, they lived on the edges, on the margins of society, and they didn't trust much, you know? And if I was going to be of any use to them, I had to be clear about my intention and real, yeah? Some of them blossomed, and it was beautiful, you know? And they, they discovered a kindness or found forgiveness that they'd been looking for their whole lives. But some of them turned toward the wall and withdrawal, and they never came back again. Yeah. And, and all of them were my teachers. There was a Nguyen, Nguyen, a Vietnamese man who was really afraid of ghosts. And his roommate was Isaiah. And Isaiah was very, very comforted by visits from his dead mother. <laughs> yeah. There was a hemophiliac a man that I worked with who contracted the HIV disease from a blood transfusion. But the year before, he had disowned his gay son who was living with AIDS. Yeah. Now we were caring for the both of them, father and son, both dying of AIDS in twin beds in a single room, being looked after by Agnes, who was the husband's wife and the son's mother. Some of the people that I worked with, they, um, they had beautiful, intact families, you know, and they had good health insurance, and they were people of political power in San Francisco. Some of them had deep faith, and others swore off religion years ago. Um, what was true about all these folks is that they didn't want nonsense. They wanted authentic relationship. They wanted somebody real to be with them. Some of the folks I worked with died in their early 20s. Yeah? And then there was Elizabeth, I remember. She was 93 years old. And she said to me, why has death come for me so soon? <laughs> yeah. In Zen, we say that um, when your teachers are in the room, they keep you honest. Yeah. So tonight, I, I brought my teachers, about a hundred of them. Yeah. And I'm going to show them to you in just a moment. And um, these, are, these are photos of people that I worked with over many, many years, all of which have died. Yeah. Now, when I was preparing for this talk, the great people that work with Stuart here said, could you send us your deck? Yeah. <laughs> I said, no, it's attached to my house. I, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, mm. 
<laughs> but I said, I don't have a deck. I said, but what I have are my friends, and I'll bring them with me. Yeah. So um, I brought with me these photos, and, and um, they're not a video for you to watch passively. And they're not PowerPoint slides, you know. These are real people inviting you to learn from what they've encountered. So I'm going to show them in just a minute, but I want to first encourage you to think about bringing your attention to these photos in a particular way. That as you listen to me, also watch the photos. And I want to suggest that you keep 50% of your attention in your own experience. You know, you can listen to me with the other part. It's not that important, actually. What happens in your experience is much more important. And you can support that by sensing into your body and your breath and really sensing the messages that it's constantly sending to you. And when we contact our bodies, what happens is it gives us more access to our emotional life. And so we can stay present also for the emotions that are here, the tenderness or the love or the fear or the tears or the grief that might emerge for you. I mean, what would happen if tonight, while we're watching these photos and listening to me, you didn't turn away from anything? You're willing to meet whatever came forward for you. And as we open our body and heart, you know, we expand to look at our minds, you know, to really observe our minds, to walk into the room of our mind and find out what's going on there. You know, the remembering or the planning or the judging, the comparing that might be happening there. And then I want to encourage you to take one more backward step, we say in Zen. Take a backward step and to settle back into the awareness that can be cognizant of all of this activity of body, heart, and mind. And settle into that. So as you look at these photos, I want you to try and maintain that self-awareness through the whole course of the evening. Yeah? And, and I want you to ask two simple questions of yourself. What attracts me to the photo? And what causes me to pull away, even if slightly? What attracts me and what causes me to pull away? And, and you know, track it. See what happens. And, and maybe toward the end of the evening, we can ask you a little bit about that. You can share it with us. So, Andrew, let, let's put up the slides now and let these happen. And I'm just going to keep talking and keeping company with these folks. You know, dying is intimate, is inevitable and intimate. And ordinary people, people like you and I, they regularly develop insights into their lives in the time of dying that have them emerge as a much larger, more expansive, more real person than the small separate self they've taken themselves to be. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a, uh, uh, something that contradicts all the suffering that's also part of the dying experience. It's a transcendence of that tragedy. And a discovery regularly occurs for people in the final weeks or days or sometimes moments of their lives. Now you might say, too late. And I would tend to agree with you. It's too late. But the value is not in how long they had that experience. The value is in that the experience exists. And if it exists at the time of our dying, it exists now. Yeah. 
So a while back, I tried to consolidate or develop a few simple ideas that shared the wisdom that people had given me in, in being with them around their dying. And so I developed these five practices, I called them, or, or five invitations that for me served as reliable guides, ways to be with people in their dying. And as it turns out, they have a value for the rest of us in leading a life of integrity. So I call them five invitations. And an invitation is a request, right, to be present at a particular event in your life. Well, this event is your life. Yeah. And what these invitations are are a, um, an encouragement for you to be present for every part of it. So the first invitation, don't wait. Don't wait. That's the first invitation. You know, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive, we miss this one. Waiting, strategizing, you know, um, about the future and what it holds for us, we miss the, one, the moment that's right in front of us. I cannot tell you how many times I've been with family members who've said to me, when is mom going to die? And waiting for the moment when mom dies, they missed all the other moments in between. There was a friend of mine he, um, he called me up and he said, my mom is dying, and the doctors say she has about six weeks to live. Um, she lives in Toronto, and he was living here in San Francisco, and he said, uh, when should I go? And this is actually a quandary a lot of us have. We don't know. We're, our families are miles and miles apart sometimes. So I said, I don't know. Uh, come on over. We'll talk about it. So Tony came over, and we sat down, and he told me a bit about what the doctors had said. And then I asked him a bit about his mom, and he started to talk about his mom. And as he spoke about his mom, I, I noticed that his chin started to tr tremble a little bit. And that the color in his face started to turn just a little bit, you know. And I said, I, I think you should go tonight. And he said, I can't. I have business tomorrow. I have things to do. And I said, well, go tonight. And so he said, okay. And he, he took the red eye and flew to Toronto. And... 10 o'clock in the morning, he touched down in Toronto. At 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he was sitting with his mother when she died. Don't wait. If there's someone you love, tell them you love them. Mostly we imagine death will come later. Yeah? And later, it creates this comfortable illusion of a kind of safe distance. But constant change and permanence, it's not later. It's right now. Change is the norm. George Harrison was right when he sang, all things must pass. This moment always is giving way to the next, you know? Everything is vanishing right before our eyes. I mean, I used to have blonde hair. <laughs> and, you know, unlike Stuart, gravity is having its way with my body. This isn't a magic trick. It's a fact of life. Impermanence is the essential truth that's woven into the very fabric of our life. And it's inescapable, and it's perfectly natural, and it's our most constant companion. Maybe you're like me. I love to lie in bed in the morning. <laughs> I do not get up and exercise right away. I like to be there under the covers and the refuge of my soft sheets and the warmth of the morning, you know? And it's perfect, and life is great then, right? It's just 
Stunning. And then I have to pee. <laughs> right? So I resist for a while, and then finally I get up, and I run to the bathroom, and then I come back, you know, having released all of this tension. And I get back into bed, and I pull all the covers up around me, hoping to recreate the same perfect conditions again, and I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. Intellectually, we understand that our mother's treasured vase will one day fall from the shelf, that our car will break down, that we will die. But our work is to move this understanding from our intellect and nestle it deep in our hearts. I was telling Stuart earlier that in Buddhism, the law of impermanence is called the law of change and becoming. It's not just lost. It's not just everything falls off the end of the earth. Things are constantly dissolving and becoming. Yeah? We are at once here and disappearing. We rely on, on impermanence, don't we? I mean, that cold that you have, you know, it's going to go away. And that really boring dinner party will eventually come to an end, you know? And, uh, you know, dictatorships will crumble and be replaced, I hope, by thriving democracies. And even trees have to burn down, right? For the forest to survive. In Japan, right now, right now, this week, cherry blossoms are blossoming everywhere. Yeah. And I teach in Idaho a lot. And outside the cabin where I teach, there are these blue flax flowers that last for just one day. Why is it that those flowers are so much more beautiful than plastic ones? Yeah? I think it's because of the impermanence of them, their ephemeral nature. When we embrace impermanence, a certain grace, I think, enters our life. And we're free to savor our life then. You know, whether that's moments of great joy or of sadness. We become more appreciative and resilient. So at the heart, this particular invitation, Don't Wait, is reminding us that the past and the future are stories. That the only place we can really live is here and now. And encourage us to encourage us to recognize that when we're looking through a concept, when we're looking through a construction, we're losing touch with the immediacy of our lives. If we learn to let go into uncertainty, to trust that our basic nature and that of the rest of the world are not fundamentally different, then the fact that things are not solid and fixed becomes a liberating opportunity rather than a threat. What becomes undeniable when you're sitting with people who are dying is that the fragility and the impermanence are in the very nature of life. It's always coming together and falling apart. Not just the physical properties of life, and not just at the time of death. And it's possible to hold it all in love and compassion. Okay. Second invitation. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Sounds good, right? Make a great bumper sticker. Yeah. How do we do it? To welcome is to actually confront us. Um, the word welcome even confronts us. It, it, it causes us to temporarily suspend our usual rush to judgment. And um, it's a kind of invitation, right, to welcome. 
And we don't have to like what's arising, and we don't have to agree with it. Our task is just to meet what's showing up at our door. So when I suggest that we become receptive to everything, to everything that's present, I don't mean that we let life step on us, that we become a doormat. Not at all. Acceptance is not resignation. It's an opening to possibility. You know, whenever we fight with reality, we lose. That's my experience. Whenever I fight with reality, I lose. So when we're open and receptive, we have options. We're free to discover, free to investigate, free to learn how to respond skillfully to anything that emerges. You know, the great African-American writer James Baldwin, who I have such admiration for, he said, not everything that can be faced can be changed. But nothing can be changed that is not faced. Yeah. A few years ago, I was teaching retreat for um, um, doctors and nurses on compassion. And in the middle of that retreat, I had a heart attack. <laughs> and uh, this resulted in an urgent surgery, a triple bypass surgery, and it was a big deal. And it was very humbling. I used to think I knew something about dying until after my heart attack. Then I realized I didn't know anything. So this very famous Tibetan teacher, he called me up when I was at home recovering. And, and this particular teacher, he'd had his own heart um, problems. And so I asked him, how did you deal with it? You know, I thought he'd give me some esoteric practice. Like, how did you deal with it? You know, the drama and the beauty and the horror and the pain and the, all of it, you know, the depression. There was a pause on the other end of the line. And, and he said, well, I think it's good to have a heart. <laughs> and he said, if we have a heart, well, we should expect it will have problems. And then he encouraged me to rest, and he hung up. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, I thought, he's right. You know, If we have a human life, we should expect it will have problems. Where did we get the idea that it would be otherwise? So one of the things that being with dying has shown me is the possibility of what happens when we turn toward our suffering. We're always running in the other direction, away from it. It whacks us in the back of the head, you know? The healing is always found in the middle of the suffering. So that's the place to go. I was sitting in my office one day, and the phone rang. This man on the other end of the phone said, our son has just died, and we understand you could help keep him at home. And could you help us with that? And I said, yeah, I can do that. So I went to their house. I'd never been, I never met this, this family before. And I, I walked in the door and went into the bedroom of this young boy, seven years old, who died of cystic fibrosis. And following my intuition, I, I went over to the bed and I leaned over and I kissed him on the forehead. And when I did this, the whole room broke into tears. Because while everybody had cared for him with great love, nobody had touched him since he died. Yeah. And so this mom and this dad, we, we talked about this ritual of bathing the body that's been done for millennium, you know, in every culture and every religion. So we talked about doing that with their little boy. And, and uh, so they were great gardeners. They went out to the garden and they got mm, sage and rosemary and lemon geraniums and 
rose petals, and we made a basin of water, you know, these sweet herbs, flowers. And then we started to bathe this boy. It was a hot fire. They started, I remember, at the back of his head, and they started to bathe him down the back of his head and his neck and down his back. And This mom, you know, she was so beautiful. She took care of every little scratch and abrasion, you know, with so much love. Sometimes it was too much for the dad. He couldn't do it, and so he would just have to go stand next to the window and look out into the garden, you know. His mom kept washing down this young boy's body, and she got to his toes, and she counted his toes. She said she'd done that when he was born. Yeah. How many of you are parents in the room? How many of you are moms or dads? Yeah. We can't imagine this. Right? This mom would look at me sometimes with these beseeching eyes. And she would say to me, just in the silence, really, Am I going to survive this? Is it possible to survive this? Can any mother survive this? And my job was to hand her another washcloth and orient her back to her son, back to the suffering. Because that's where the healing's found in the suffering. She washed up the front of his body and she'd stop once in a while, he, she and her husband, and they would tell me stories about him, you know. It took three hours to wash this boy's body because they had to keep stopping and telling me about it and telling me about him as a way of getting current with the situation where they were, yeah. Yeah. When this mom got to this boy's face, it was so tender between them. So beautiful. She burned through a kind of grief. And I don't mean that her grief was over. I mean that, that there was no separation between this mother and child. Probably like the moment in which he was born, you know. The mothers in the room who have breastfed their children, you know this. You know what it's like to be one being. Yeah. That's what it was like with this mom and this boy. Extraordinary. We... Um, dressed him in his Mickey Mouse pajamas. And we invited his brothers and sisters in the room, and I, and I asked them what, they liked, what did he like to do more than anything, and they said, oh, he liked to build model airplanes. So we got all his model airplanes, and we made this mobile over his bed, you know, so his brothers and sisters could be part of this process too. Yeah. Turn toward the suffering. When I went home that night, I held my son... Very, very close. He was seven years old at the time. Yeah. <laughs> at the deepest level, this invitation is asking us to cultivate a kind of fearless receptivity. Welcome everything, push away nothing. It can't be done as an act of will. It can only be done as an act of love. Yeah. There's a lot to being human. Much more than getting born and getting an education and finding the right partner and getting a pretty house on a nice street so that you can sleep, wake, work, go to bed and do it all over again. This is an invitation to feel everything. To come into direct contact with this strange, beautiful, horrible, 
an often perfectly ordinary thing we call life. It's an opportunity to be conscious of the fact that some of us will make love while others of us make war. And this week has really shown us that. It's to recognize the truth that there are babies like my granddaughter, born into loving arms, caressed by a mother who kisses a bright future into her cheeks. And there are people like my friend Carolyn whose parents left her in a dumpster. And there are ways of, reminds us to embrace the night screams that happen in refugee camps and the giggling of children in living rooms who are making tents out of couch pillows and bed sheets. There is devastation and there is hopelessness and there is passion and the holy commitment to create a better future for all of us. Welcome everything, push away nothing. Third invitation. Bring your whole self to the experience. Yeah? We all like to look good, right? Everybody likes to look good. We want to be seen as capable and strong and as intelligent, and, or at least as well-adjusted. We like to project a very positive self-image. And few of us want to be known for our helplessness or fear or anger or or ignorance, or sometimes that we're just much more of a mess than we are letting on to the world. Yet more than once, I found the undesirable qualities of my life, the aspects of myself that I most wanted to hide from the world, to be the very things that allowed me to meet someone else's pain and suffering with compassion instead of pity. When we care for others, we think it's our expertise that serves that it's our strength that serves. I don't think so. You know, I, I have a lot of tools. I have a whole toolbox full of tools. <laughs> but when I go into a room where someone's dying, I don't put that toolbox down between me and the person that I'm seeing. One of us is sure to trip over it. So I leave with my humanity. And when I need a tool, I'll find it. It's there in my back pocket, you know. To be... To bring our whole self, to be whole, means to include, to accept and connect all the parts of ourself. It's about accepting ourselves as is. My daughter's here, and we used to go shopping in consignment stores, you know, like Crossroads or one of those, you know. And, and they're great, you know, because you find these great finds in them, you know, a paisley scarf or a cool leather jacket or, you know, a pair of sequined heels or something like this, you know. And, and um, so when she would be trying on things, I would peruse the racks, you know, and look for the next cool item. And in this one store we were in one day, I remember looking on this leather jacket, and there was a little cardboard tag on it with the price on it. And then this really simple thing, it said, as is, as is. And I thought, we should get those tags for ourselves and each other. <laughs> I take you as is. Is there a better gift we could offer ourselves or each other? Wholeness doesn't mean perfection. It means no part of us left out. Yeah? So years ago, I was taking care of a friend of mine. His name was John, and uh, he was dying of AIDS. And there were about four or five of us looking after him. And, and there's one morning I came to his house, and... Uh, Overnight, 
he had lost his ability to stand, to hold a fork, or to speak in any intelligent way. All happened in one night. And I was sitting across the kitchen table from him, which was always a mess at John's house, and, and I said, I couldn't find my friend. I mean, where was he? He was just there the night before, you know. And so we went through this day together. It was my day to take care of him, you know. And it was a lot of work, you know, taking care of John. It wasn't easy. And the day rolled into the night, and the night rolled into the early hours of the morning. John had these anal tumors and constant diarrhea, and taking care of him was hard. And I was tired, and I was cajoling and paternalistic, and I treated him like he was a child sometimes. And I just wanted for him to go to sleep and to wake up in the morning and somehow have this nightmare be over. That's what I wanted. Me, Mr. Hospice, yeah. And so I'm washing my hands one, one, in one moment at the sink, you know, and, and I look in the vanity mirror, and John, who's not spoken all day, is whispering to me. He's sitting on the toilet with his pajamas down around his ankles. And he says to me, you are trying too hard. <laughs> and I was. Trying much too hard to be somebody, you know. Me, the caregiver. Me, Mr. Hospice, yeah. And I stopped right in the middle of what I was doing. And I sat down next to the toilet and I just began to weep. I just cried. And that moment, you know, me and John in the bathroom, shit everywhere. It was the most intimate moment of our whole friendship. Because in that moment, you see, we weren't separate anymore. I had been afraid to go into the territory where John was, which was helplessness. I was afraid to go into helplessness. I was afraid that if I went there, we would get lost, I would get lost, and I couldn't be of any use. But it isn't what happened. What happened is that when I sat there next to him, the situation showed us what to do next. But I couldn't have seen that before, do you see? I had to be willing to go into that territory. Hmm. Bring your whole self to the experience. You know, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, compassion, it comes, it's hooked up with wisdom. And it's particularly the wisdom that we're not separate from each other. I mean, we're each unique, beautiful beings. I mean, I wish you could stand here and see the beauty that's in this audience. Absolutely unique, individual, but not separate. No more than the waves are separate from the ocean. And, and it works on this notion that there's, we could say, two dimensions of compassion. One we might call universal compassion or absolute compassion. It's, it's the compassion that's always there. It's always been there. Everybody and in, 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 in everything has always been embraced by this compassion even if we didn't know it, you know, even if we were blind to it. And then there's everyday compassion. There's us doing stuff. You know, it's changing soiled sheets or feeding somebody or standing up against injustice. That's everyday compassion, right? Now, everyday compassion is exhausting. I know. You know, you start wanting people to thank you for all the good things you're doing. And you get tired. So it's got to be sourced in something bigger than me got to be sourced in something real. And that's universal compassion. But universal compassion is just a big idea. It's just a big prayer. And you know, if prayers were enough to stop the suffering in the world, we would have stopped the suffering a long time ago. So universal compassion and everyday compassion, they need each other. Yeah? 
It needs our arms and legs. It needs our tongues and eyes to see the suffering of the world and respond to it. Yeah. And we can only respond with compassion, you know, if we know something about suffering. Not much contact with suffering, not much compassion. Yeah. I, was, my, I have a friend, Bernie Glassman. He's a Zen teacher in New York. and He was teaching in Germany about this, um, this figure in Buddhism called Avalokiteshvara. She's a feminist figure, and she has, you've seen her, she has a thousand arms. Yeah. And in each of those arms, in each of those hands, there's an ear. An ear to hear the cries of the world and a thousand arms to respond to it. Isn't that a beautiful image? Yeah. So Bernie was talking about this in this... In this gathering, and this man raised his hand. He said, well, it's a very nice metaphor, but I only have two arms. What should I do? And Bernie, who was very kind, said, I'm sorry you're mistaken. And the man said, no, I'm sure. I have just these two arms. And then Bernie had everybody in the audience raise both their arms. Go ahead, do it. Look around. thousand arms. We can't do this by ourselves. And we're not alone. Fourth invitation. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. Most of us think we are too busy, and probably we are. But also, the way we think about that topic matters. You know, when I was in the third grade, um, watching that minute hand go around those big round school clocks, it took forever. <laughs> but summer vacations lasted forever. And now there's never quite enough time. What happened? It's the same 24 hours. Same 24 hours in every day. So this feeling of not having enough time, it doesn't align with objective reality. There's a Zen story about a monk who's sweeping the temple grounds, you know, and another monk comes by and, and kind of, you know, snips at him and says, too busy, too busy, like that. And, and the monk who's sweeping, he says, oh, you should know, there's one who's not too busy. And what he was talking about is that even in the midst of all his activity, there was some part of him inside that wasn't busy at all. Most of us imagine that rest will come when we go on vacation or when our inbox gets empty or we check off our list. You know, my list is never done. My inbox has never been empty. Yeah? So if I wait for that, I'm in trouble. There was a woman that was at the hospice. Her name was Adele, and she was, I think, 86 years old, Russian Jewish woman, tough as nails. My father would say she was a tough old broad. And the night she was dying, they called me up, and so I came to see her. I used to go all the time when people were dying to be with them. And I walked in the room, and uh, I sat on the couch in the corner. That's my way. Sit down, find out if anything's really needed before I jump in to help. Yeah. And there was this mm, nurse's aide, a really great woman, who was sitting next to Adele, you know, and, and uh, she turned to her and she said, Adele, you don't have to be scared. I'm right, we're right here with you. And Adele, this tough cookie, you know, she turned to her and she said, Honey, if this was happening to you, you'd be scared. 
(laughs) So I stayed in the corner. (laughs) A little while later, the the very nice, well-meaning attendant, you know, she put a shawl over Adele. She said, you look a little cold. Would you like a shawl? And Adele shot back, of course I'm cold. I'm almost dead. (laughs) And I thought, well, I hope I have half of the tenacity of this woman. When I'm dying, yeah? These are my teachers. These are my teachers. So I noticed a couple of things. Maybe you even noticed it in the story. One was that Adele was struggling. There's a labor to dying. It's like there's a labor to getting born. And her struggle was manifesting in the breath. Every in-breath struggle, every out-breath struggle, yeah? And this despite all the right interventions of morphine and oxygen, etc. It's a struggle to dying. And the second was that she wanted no nonsense. She wanted real. She didn't want to talk about tunnels of light or California woo-woo stuff or bardos or any of these things. She just wanted real, someone real to be with her. So I pulled up my chair and I, I sat down right in front of her, you know, and I said, Adele, would you like to struggle a little less? And she said, yes. I said, okay. I said, I noticed something. I noticed just there at the end of your exhale, just before the next inhale, there was this little gap. And I wonder what it would be like if you put your attention there for a minute. Now remember, this is an 86-year-old Russian Jewish lady. She doesn't care beans about Buddhism or meditation or any of these things. But she's highly motivated in this moment to be free of suffering. So I said, I'll do it with you. So there we were, breathing together. She would breathe in, I would breathe in. She would breathe out, I would breathe out. Yeah, Just like that. Nothing simple. I mean, nothing fancy, just simple. I didn't guide her, I just breathed with her. And as you could see her sort of put her attention in that gap, you know, that little pause there, that little nanosecond. And as she did, you could just see the fear in her face just drain away. And she laid back on her pillow and she said, thanks. And a few minutes later, she died very peacefully. I think Adele found the place of rest in the middle of things. Understand? I mean, all the conditions were the same. She was still dying. It was still difficult with breathing. There was still all the stuff, the hubbub. But she found a place of rest right in the middle of it. Where do you find that rest? Yeah. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. You know, the easiest place to know this is in our own breath, right? Just to become mindful for a moment of our own breathing. After my heart attacks, after the surgery rather, uh, it was a long surgery, maybe 12 hours or something like this, and I was, I was wheeled into the CCU unit, intubated, tubes coming out of every orifice, morphine pumping into one arm, something else pumping into the next arm, you know, machine breathing for me. I was very disoriented. And, and, and into the, my son was with me. He's here tonight. My son was with me and my best friend, Eugene, who's a meditation teacher. He was with me. And um, we're there, and I'm kind of foggy. And this respiratory therapist walks in the room, and he said, let's pull out that tube and see if you can breathe. <laughs> and I was like, no, no. no. <laughs> I could feel there was something wrong with my lung, and it, it was, something wasn't right, you know? I could just feel it, you know? And so I, I wrote 
on a pad. I'm scared. And my friend Eugene, who's a really level-headed meditation teacher, he said, Frank, find your breath. And so I tried to, but I couldn't tell the difference between the machine and my own breath. And then he said, sense your body, sense your body. And I tried, but I could only feel my body up to about my knees. There was still anesthesia and all that stuff going on, you know. I was scared. And then I remembered Suzuki Roshi. You know, just off the block from here is the San Francisco Zen Center. And Suzuki Roshi started, he was this shy, wonderful, ferocious, actually, Zen guy, Japanese man, who in 10 years changed the face of Zen in America. But the night before he was dying, Suzuki Roshi, the great meditation master, he said, I want to take a bath. And his wife discouraged it, but his son, Otohiro, filled the bathtub and picked up his father, and he carried him to the bathtub. And he lowered his father down into the bath water. And as he did, Suzuki Roshi got terrified. He was afraid he would drown. Yeah. And I remembered this when I was in the hospital. And I thought, if Suzuki Roshi can be scared, I can be scared. <laughs> yeah. My son put uh, his hand on my chest, I remember. And it was like a conduit from God. Yeah. And Eugene, he, uh, I pulled him really close to me. And I put my ear against his cheek. And so for a while, I just followed the rhythm of his breath until I could find my own again. I borrowed his breath until I could find my own. Hmm. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. It's not about managing all the conditions. Okay. Last invitation, fifth invitation. Cultivate don't know mind. Now, I, I felt obliged to put something zen-like in this list. <laughs> <laughs> My son used to say to me, Dad, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, to cultivate don't know mind is not an encouragement to ignorance, you know. Ignorance is not just not knowing. Ignorance is we know something, but it's the wrong thing. <laughs> ignorance is misperception. Don't know mind represents something entirely different. It's, it's, it's beyond knowing and not knowing altogether. It's off the charts from either of those. Don't know mind is characterized by curiosity, by wonder, by awe, by surprise. You ever watch a kid? You know, I have my granddaughter. I like to play hide and seek with her. And every time I do it, she's surprised. <laughs> and she loves it. Yeah? It's totally fun being surprised. Do you ever throw a surprise party for an adult? Yeah. <laughs> You know, they walk in the room and they say, who's responsible for this, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so don't know mind is a mind that's ready, that's open, that's free. Um, it's an invitation to enter with fresh eyes, uh, to empty our minds and open our hearts. Yeah. That night before my surgery... Uh, my son and I were having this really great heart-to-heart -heart talk, you know. I love my son. And we were talking about this and that. And then he, in the middle of this conversation, he said, Dad, are you going to live through this? And it took me back, you know. And, and you know, I'm the dad, so I want to say, of course, no problem. Easy, got it. And so I started to say that. But out of my mouth, I heard myself say, 
I'm not taking sides. <laughs> yeah. And it really surprised me. I mean, I wasn't trying to be Buddhist or sage or anything like that. I just, in that moment, I wasn't taking sides with life or death. You know, in, in Zen, they talk about enlightenment and awakening and realization, all these fancy words, you know. They all seem really far off to me. And, and people are trying to achieve them. And, and then when they get to them, they can have some, you know, transcendental moment where they can float beyond all the troubles of the world. I don't see it that way. A better word for me is intimacy. You know, when I, I don't even call my practice mindfulness practice anymore. I just call it the practice of intimacy, learning to be intimate with myself and the world. You know, in Zen, there's another teaching that's related to this. It says, you know, the path is right beneath your feet. In other words, it's right here, right now. Dying is not something at the end of a long road. So the intimacy of don't know mind is the encouragement to connect with life, with the sound of the birds, with the spring breeze, you know, with this very life, with the truth of what's here. We could say with the sacredness of life. Now, that's a tough word for a lot of us, sacredness, but for me, the sacred's not something separate or different from the rest of life, but it's rather, it's something that's hidden in the middle of life. And in the dying process, the dying process is a stripping away process, and what it does is it reveals the sacred. It reveals the sacred. At Zen Hospice, we had a unit at Laguna Honda Hospital, just down the road, and you know, it's the nation's largest public long-term care facility. 1,100 beds. And they, they redid it recently, but in, when we were there, it looked like this. That's Laguna Honda. That picture. One room with 30 or 40 beds to a room. Everybody in those beds are dying. That's where we were. It's like our worst nightmare in America, right? No privacy. But actually, it was pretty remarkable because people saw other people dying and they saw that they weren't left alone, that they weren't in intractable pain, that they were cared for beautifully. Anyway, I was walking down this gauntlet of beds, looks like that, one day, and, and there was this older African-American man, and he was sweating up a storm. And so I went over, and I sat down in the chair next to him, and, and I said to him, you look like you're working really hard. That's my way of being with people. And he said, yeah, just got to get there. And he pointed like that. <laughs> and I said, oh. I said, uh, if I promise to come, if I promise to keep up, can I come? And he said, yeah. And he grabbed my hand. Now, this man was actively dying. And I said to him, I didn't bring my glasses. I can't see there into the distance. Can you see? And he described for me a sloping hillside to a kind of plateau. I said, you want to go? Yeah. Okay, let's go. And we walked up this hillside, and he was huffing and puffing and panting, you know, sweating up a storm. When we got to the plateau, I said, can you see there further into the distance? And he said, yeah. And he, he described for me a little one-room red schoolhouse with three steps and a door. This is a man who'd been raised in Mississippi. Now, I could have said to him at this time, you're disoriented times three. This is a result of the morphine and the brain metastasis. <laughs> But none of that was true. What was true is we were walking to a little red schoolhouse. I said, you want to go in? Yeah. Can I go? No. 
I said, okay, then you go. And a few minutes later, he died very peacefully. To see the sacred is not about seeing something new. It's about seeing things in a new way. Yeah? Letting go is the doorway to this understanding. But the way we normally think about letting go is it implies a kind of release or distancing ourselves from a person or a situation or an object or some kind of limitation. And it's accompanied usually when we let go by some sense of freedom from previous constraint. But surrender is more about expansion. There's a freedom to it, but it's not about setting something down. You're free of it because you're no longer defined by the limitation. And that's what can happen in the time of dying. We become larger than the one who was previously enslaved to this limitation. Hmm. Transformation is a deep internal shift through which our basic identities are reconstituted. It's a process of transformation where the scales kind of fall from our eyes and we see our experience in a new way. Yeah. In the tradition that I come from, Buddhism, the reflection on death is not an ideology that we adopt to protect ourselves against death. Rather, it's an opportunity to become more intimate with death, with its inevitability, but also so that it might not as, it's not a morbid reflection. It's a way of bringing us more intimately into contact with our life so that we can see what's important right here, right now. The five invitations are a call to transformation. They can take you to the threshold, but then you have to walk the rest of the way. There's a beautiful um, quote by Rumi. It says, the, da- the door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Yeah? There was a woman in her hospice. Her name is Sono. She lived on the street. And she stayed with us for a couple of months. This is her. That's Sono. That picture was taken... uh, two hours after she came into the hospice. Tough cookie. Two hours. That's Sono, two hours after she died. How do we get from that to that? I think, in part, we take the time to look at our life, to reflect on our life, to see what has meaning and value and purpose. And we need someone to share that with We get a chance to tell our stories and mm, articulate what's important to us. We write it down sometimes. We are accompanied by compassionate companions. People who aren't afraid to love us or our suffering. Yeah? How do we get from that to that? Sono and I were uh, sitting in the kitchen one day. This is the kitchen. And I was reading a book of Japanese death poems. 
In Japan, there's this tradition that on the day of your death, you write a poem that tells the essential truth of your whole life. Yeah? Now, how awake do you have to be for that? Huh? <laughs> and I think if you don't die that day, it doesn't count. <laughs> you have to write a new one the next day. Yeah? <laughs> so I was, uh, I was reading this book of death poems, and, and Sona said, what are those? And I told her about it, and so she said, well, read me one. So I read her Kozan's famous one. It says, empty-handed, I entered the world, barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Yeah, yeah beautiful. So we're talking about this, this tradition. She said, I want to write one of those. And I said, okay, great, you should write one. She said, well, how, what's the form? How do you do it? I said, don't worry about the form, just write it. <laughs> so she went up to her room, and about three hours later, I got summoned to her room. She didn't ask me to come. She told me to come. And uh, I went into her room, and I sat down. She said, I wrote my death poem, Frank. And I want you to learn it by heart. She didn't say, uh, I want you to memorize it. She said, I want you to learn it by heart. I want to know that it lives in your soul. So I said, okay, so I'll do that. And she made me learn it right there. You know, it took, took me a while because I'm a slow learner. She said, and when I die, I want you to pin it to my bedclothes, and I want to be cremated with it. You see that poem? That's her poem. That's Sona's death poem. You want to hear it? Yeah. Mm. This is a woman who lived on the streets here. This is the woman you walk by every day and don't notice. She said, don't just stand there with your hair turning gray. Soon enough, the seas will sink your little island. So while there is still the illusion of time, set out for some other shore. No sense packing a bag. You won't be able to lift it into your boat. So give away all of your collections. Take only new seeds and an old stick. Send out some prayers on the wind before you sail. Don't be afraid. Someone knows you're coming. An extra fish has been salted. Yeah. Don't just stand there with your hair turning gray. Soon enough, the seas will sink your little island. So while there is still the illusion of time, set out for some other shore. No sense packing a bag. You won't be able to lift it into your boat. Give away all of your collections. Take only new seeds and an old stick. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? Think of farmers. Stick, seed, stick, seed, stick, seed. In, in, in Sono's mind, dying was not a final stop. It was a time of growth. Take only new seeds and an old stick. And send out some prayers on the wind before you sail. In other words, don't think you can do this alone. Get some help. Be with people who know things. Don't be afraid. Someone knows you're coming. An extra fish has been salted. Thank you, Sono. Thank you, everyone.
Holsinger asks, why do you refer to death as she? <laughs> politically correct, or is there some hidden message here? No, I think that most of our images of death are, you know, the Grim Reaper and some, you know, terrible beings coming to grab us, you know? And I think death is more soulful than that. Soulful than that. I think that, so when I called her she, I, I just thought of the soulfulness of the feminine receiving us as opposed to taking us. Matt asks, how do you and should you bring children into the conversation about death? Is this something that can wait until it is personally relevant to them, yeah. or what? Well, it's, it's a good, really good question. Thanks, for Matt. Um, years ago, before I did this work in hospice, I had a preschool where, for kids that were three to five years old. My son was part of that. And, and we used to have these days where we would take the kids out into the woods and find dead stuff. And they loved it. You know, kids are really curious, you know. So, so we'd go out in the woods and we'd find dead stuff, and they would, you know, bring it back and put it on this big blue tarp, and they would smell it and taste it and touch it and get really close to it, you know. And they had the most remarkable experiences. They would, they would talk about this stuff. It was like show and tell, you know. They would talk about these things, like they'd find a rusty old car part and say what fell from space, from a passing spaceship, and, you know. This one girl talked about this piece of bark that had been a um, bed for a mouse, that no, no longer needed it. And, and then this one little girl, she said something beautiful. She said, I think the trees are very generous. She said, the leaves that fall are very generous. They make room for new leaves to grow. <laughs> so I think having a straightforward conversation with kids is important, and not, not giving them more information than they need. You know, when I was driving down the, the road in our town where this guy, Grandpa Tom, used to live, and, and my son said, that's Grandpa Tom's house. He died. My son's five years old. And uh, I said, yeah. And then he said, uh, are you going to die? I said, yeah, someday. And he said, uh, is Mom going to die? I said, yeah, someday. We drove further down the road. And then he said, am I going to die? I said, yeah, someday. And that's all he needed. He didn't need me to make it better or to tell him a fanciful story about it. He just wanted to know. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. A lot of times this comes up with um, a pet dying in yeah. the family. And how does that play out? Yeah, I think it's a really great opportunity to get kids up close and personal mm -hmm. with the experience. And, and also, not just with the death of the pet, but with their own feelings, you know? Like, we're somehow afraid that children should have full feelings, you know, mm -hmm. that they'll feel the fullness of sadness or the fullness of fear. Um, I think that if there's a holding environment, if the parents are that holding environment, that the child can experience all those things without getting um, lost in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You've talked about mostly so far as the person doing the dying. Yeah. And in some ways, they're grieving about their own dying. But there's a lot of people around them. There's caregivers who yeah. care. There's family. There's a whole grief phenomenon that yeah. goes on. Um, what yeah. do you say about that, Mark? I, I, think it's, I think it's really tough, Stuart. You know, like, we have a lot of models about grief in this culture. We've got bereavement models and all kinds of, you know, seven steps to get us through. And I don't 
believe in any of them, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, it is fierce grief. And, you know, it's a whole spectrum of experiences that might include sadness and fear, and, and, but also relief. You know, after you've been caring for someone you love for months, there's relief in grief. Mm -hmm. There's and a lot there's, of laughter sometimes. That sure, absolutely. At the funeral yeah. And yeah, and there's numbness, mm -hmm. you know, which people think is no feeling, but it's a feeling of its own numbness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes our grief is about what we've had and lost, and sometimes it's about what we never got to have, you know? And it doesn't stop, you know? Like, if my wife dies, she's the one that kept the bed warm. Mm -hmm. And when I come into bed at night, I lose her again. Mm -hmm. I don't just lose her once, I lose her many times, you know? I've had CEOs of companies that were brilliant, but they were eating tuna fish for dinner because they didn't know how to fill that role for themselves. Somebody else in their family had done it for them. And part of their grief was, part of working with their grief was helping them to figure out how to make a meal. Hmm. You know? So, um, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, in the old days, when people were grieving, they used to wear a black armband, right? Yeah, Ryan talks about this. And they wore it for like a year. Yeah, the they wore it for, for, for a period of mourning because, you know, what it said was, look, I am in an altered state here. Mm -hmm. Do not expect me to behave normally. You know, I need help, you know. I can't do the daily activities the way I used to do them. And so the whole village would look after that person and, and care for them until that period of mourning was you know, seemingly coming to some kind of conclusion. I mean, in, in the Jewish tradition, when you sit shiva, you know, you come into the house, you cover all the mirrors and clocks, and you sit shiva, you sit for a week, and you take your cue from the family. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're telling a joke, you laugh. But the really important thing about that whole practice is that at the end of a week, you go out and you walk around the village, or you walk around the block, mm -hmm. yeah, to demonstrate to somebody that a certain period of mourning is coming to a close and you're ready to re-enter the world. Yeah. We've lost touch with some of these rituals, and I want to bring them back. Question uh, without a name. What is your perspective on unexpected death, uh, sudden passing? How do you cope? Totally differently. You know, like the shock and the denial and the, you know, the disbelief is phenomenal, you know? at that point. And so, you know, the, the best thing you can do if you're with someone who's going through the grieving, a loss like that, is just hold their hand and, and you know, bring them food and help them fill out the insurance forms and, and understand that it will take time for that loss to be assimilated and to be metabolized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dan O'Grady, David O'Grady, Todd O'Grady? Mr. O'Grady asks, how can we help those newly diagnosed with incurable dementia face impending diminishment and loss of self? And dementia in general, where does that fit in all this? It's, it's mm, not bang dying, it's yeah. this other thing. I mean, we, you and I were talking about this earlier, that you know, there's this tsunami coming that we are totally unprepared for. I mean, one in, f one in 10 adults over 65 have Alzheimer's, the, the most common cause of dementia. Over 85, 32% of those people have Alzheimer's, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, in this country, there's, I think, 49,000 people living with Alzheimer's. The expectation is that within the next 10 years, 
If we don't change something about this, we'll have 70 million people living with Alzheimer's. And this is a first world disease. In other words, people in third world nations are not living long enough to get Alzheimer's. But they will. They will. That's right. So this is real and we are completely unprepared. Yeah. So, you know, there's all kinds of things that we need to do as a culture to, you know, respond to this massive epidemic, which is, by the way, dwarfing the HIV epidemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's 70 million people in the, in the world with HIV now. Mm -hmm. About half of those people have died. Alzheimer's is going to leave that in the dust. How do those five invitations play out for the increasingly fading dementia person? You know, it's confusing for us to be around somebody who's confused. Mm. We get confused. Mm. And so, you know, I think it helps us to see that memory is a good cousin to truth, but not its twin. Yeah? In other words, memory is always reforming, right? We only remember the last time we remembered something. That's what we remember, right? Uh -huh. So our, uh, even our notion of some kind of objective reality is always changing anyway. It's just that it's, we agree on it. So when I'm with people who are uh, suffering from dementia, I try to remember that there's a whole human being there. You know, my aunt was 86 years old with Alzheimer's, and, and when I went to see her, she'd be throwing her dress over her head, you know, and calling me by other names. She always thought I was somebody else. And I would just be with her, you know. And one day I got curious. I said, Mimi, all these years, you know, you never had a sweetheart? You never had a beau? Because she never got married, you know. And she sat up in her chair like this. And she really folded her arms. She said, some questions are too personal to ask. <laughs> Where did that come from? Where did that come from? I don't know. But that mystery mm -hmm. keeps me looking. Keeps me really wanting to continue to see the person with dementia as a whole human being. And not just as their condition. So do you have conversations with them as if there's a whole... Yeah. In there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and there is. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we're pretty identified with our brains. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not so identified with our spleens, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so if our brain starts to go, we think, oh, there's nobody there. You know, oh, there's no value to this life. Oh, why? We don't say that about our spleens. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole human being there. This organ is not functioning, but there's still a. There's a whole being there that can still receive our love, mm -hmm. can still feel touch, can, you know, watch this beautiful film that's out there called Alive Inside. Maybe you've seen it. It's about a social worker who starts playing music for people with Alzheimer's and, mm -hmm. and serious dementia, and they come alive. They don't, their dementia doesn't go away, mm -hmm. but their, their ability to appreciate life steps, comes forward. Yeah. So yeah, there's a whole human being there. So another thing going on in the world around death is that, besides far more dementia, is physician-assisted suicide, basically. Um, checking out yeah. really, on purpose. What's, yeah. What's your view on that? You know, for a long time, I mean, I haven't been in a program where somebody hasn't asked me this question. Mm -hmm. and, and for a long time, I didn't necessarily share a view because I wanted the culture to wrestle with it actually. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to be the expert saying, okay, this is the right answer. 
And, and I still feel that way, actually. But the culture is wrestling with it. You know, we have now five states where physician-assisted death, by the way, not suicide, mm -hmm. is how we think about it, uh, is, is legal. Mm -hmm. California just approved it. In, in Oregon, which is the state I'm most familiar with and has the best data, Barbara Coombs Lee and I sat down four hours in her office one day talking about this subject. She wanted me to be on their national board, and I wanted to get informed. So the, here's the stats. 20, it's been 1997, the Oregon law got passed. 20 years we've been doing this. 1,545 people have applied for prescriptions to end their life. Mm -hmm. 991, I think, have actually um, taken the medications. Mm -hmm. That's about 49 people a year. That means that thousands of people have wanted information, got it directly or indirectly. Over 20 years, 1,500 or so of them have actually gotten the medications, but only 900 have taken the medications. That tells me two things. One is, it's really reassuring for people to know that they can do this. Hmm. Um, the hospice referrals in Oregon skyrocketed. Uh, pain and symptom management is better there than it's ever been. Um, I think that having the comfort of knowing that I can use this option if I want to mm -hmm. helps a lot of people to stay with their experience and actually not choose that option, but in fact stay with the experience uh, through their dying process. Because just in a sense, the big choice is opening up all these other choices for them? They have agency? What's happening? Yeah, I have agency. I'm not a victim to this experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now that I have agency, I can step into this experience. Mm -hmm. I, can, I can put both feet in. I can be engaged in this and see what it has to teach me. You know, from the plantage point we are now, we say, oh, I would never. Well, when it comes to that point, that'll be too much. Mm -hmm. But we don't know what it's going to be like in that moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, my experience is our habit to live is really strong. Mm. I mean, don't underestimate this instinctual drive you know, to live. And my experience is that when people are surrounded by good care, when they have proper you know, pain management and symptom control and they're loving, compassionate people around them, they feel the support, not just to get through the experience, but to use the experience as an opportunity, maybe the greatest opportunity to transform in their lives. So it's called physician-assisted suicide. Yeah. Um, I think the name what stinks. What does it do for the physicians, for the medical profession to have this as uh, yeah. one medical option out there? Well, of course, in the beginning, it was difficult for a lot of docs. You know, some docs had religious and other kinds of moral, you know, views about this. But the reality was, it was always going on. Mm -hmm. It just was going on under the radar. Yeah, my father got extra morphine. Right. Right. The, you know, the country doc used to do this all the time. Right. He would make the decision on his own, you know, for Grandma or for mm -hmm. Auntie Joan, you know. It used to happen all the time. I was in the AIDS epidemic, you know. It happened a lot in the mm -hmm. AIDS epidemic, mm -hmm. you know. I came up on that epidemic. But now what we're doing is making a much more informed consent about it. Some country doctor isn't deciding for me. Mm -hmm. I get to decide. Um, the, the government isn't managing my experience. I get to decide. And again, that gives me a sense of agency, and I think of the possibility of meeting the experience in an entirely different way. I, I'm not advocating for this as the option that people should choose this option. We have this notion of, the law in Oregon is called the Death with Dignity Act, and I hate this name. It's like Death with Dignity mm -hmm. Act. And like, who decides what's dignified? 
I mean, who gets to decide this? Somebody, the person gets to decide this, not somebody looking in, not whether her nail polish is done. Mm -hmm. That isn't death with dignity. I've seen people in horrible conditions express the greatest dignity I've ever witnessed. Mm. You know, it had nothing to do with how they looked or the conditions of their life in that moment. Mm -hmm. It had to do with, you know, the, the basis of their humanity coming forward, you know, their true humanity coming forward. Yeah. Let me try a quote on you, um, see what you think about it. This is from a novel written in 1965 by John Williams. It's called The Stoner. It's about a very boring-seeming kind of classics professor in the Midwest, mm. and it's become a hit novel lately mm. in Europe and, and elsewhere. And in there, um, the character is being described by the author as, he wondered again at the easy, graceful manner in which the Roman lyricists accepted the fact of death as if the nothingness they faced were a tribute to the richness of the years they had enjoyed. Hmm. And he marveled at the bitterness, the terror, the barely concealed hatred he found in some of the later Christian poets of the Latin tradition hmm. when they looked at that death which promised, however vaguely, a rich and ecstatic eternity of life as if that death and promise were a mockery that soured the days of their living. Hmm. Wow. It's a beautiful passage. Yeah. It's a hell of a thing. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, you know, once the afterlife is sort of there is some kind of judgment or something. What's going on with the afterlife <laughs> being so spooky here? I don't know. You know, we got so many stories about what happens after we die. Uh-huh. And I don't know if any of them are true. I mean, I've been with a lot of people and they've told me all kinds of things, but, you know, I'll find out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, my father used to say it can't be so bad because nobody's come back to complain. But, you know, <laughs> but you know, talk to the Buddhists about that. You know. <laughs> I mean, here's what I think about this. I, so I think that that um, everybody has a story about what happens after we die. Everybody. I mean, we got it maybe when we were kids as part of our religious training or cultural training or family stories. The story changes, by the way. You know, you it absolutely religion, keeps changing. You get that story, you lose a religion. And then, but what do you get when you lose a religion? You lose one story, what do you get? And you create a new one, Same oftentimes. More. Well, we had a guy who was the uh, president of the California Atheist Association come and die with us at Zen Hospice. I, I was very proud that he felt comfortable <laughs> to come there. And, uh, and so we'd have these conversations. I always have these conversations with people. I say, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And he would say, Nothing. And I said, well, what do you mean nothing? Like, will you have a nose? Will you have ears? Will you hear things? No. <laughs> Sounds I like said, a heart <laughs> sutra. That you're doing. No, no. Right. <laughs> so I, I, said, uh, I said, well, you know, what's it going to be like, this nothing? Is it like a dial tone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, it's not like a dial tone. I said, well, what's it like? He said, well, come on. And I said, tell me more. He said, he said, well, it's like your molecules, and you mix with all the other molecules in the universe. And that's what nothing is like. I said, oh, that kind of nothing. I thought he was going to be okay, you know. Now, I had another guy, this guy Jackie. Uh, I met Jackie on Hayes Street, actually. Jackie was a 30-year heroin user. Black man. He's staying at the Zen hospice. And I said, hey, Jackie. I said, here on this Buddhist hospice. I said, do you think you're going to get born again? This is how I have conversations with people. I, I probably make a lousy therapist. 
He said, yeah, I'm going to get born again. I said, well, what are you going to come back as? He said, Jackie. <laughs> I said, well, why do you want to be Jackie? You know, you could be, you know, like in some cultures, you could be a cow, and that would be really good, you know, very spiritual. Or you could come back as a king or a queen or something like that. You know, I said, well, you know, what do you think? Come back as a cow? He said, I'm not coming back as no goddamn cow. <laughs> I'm coming back as Jackie. I said, why? How come? He said, because next time I'm going to get it right. Ooh. And we were into a whole other conversation here, yeah. you know? Like now, so ask this question of people. Mm -hmm. Find out. Don't try and talk them out of their belief systems, you know? I had this grandma. She was a Christian scientist. She was so ready to die, 90 years old. She just wanted to lay herself in the lap of Jesus. And her granddaughter came to see her, you know, and very well-meaning. She said, Grandma, you know, when you die, you don't have to worry because everybody who's died before you, they're going to be there to meet you. And they'll be there. They'll, they'll welcome you, you know. And Grandma became terrified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because the secret that she never told her family, which she told me, was that Edgar, her husband, who had died five years before, had been beating her most of her life. And now the idea of spending eternity with him was terrifying to her. Mm -hmm. So I don't impose my ideas on other people. Mm -hmm. I find out from them what's true for them, and I see how I can support that. But I don't try and give them my beliefs, you know? We'll all figure it out. I'll make the last question uh, a very Bay Area, Silicon Valley kind of question. <laughs> <laughs> From Kevin Kelly, yes, if old technologists could eradicate death as mandatory, yeah. would you celebrate or mourn? <laughs> well, that's a good the question. Death of death, what about it? Well, it's an interesting idea, Kevin. You know, June Yoon is, uh, is working on this down in, hedge fund guy down there, and doctor. Uh, he's working on hacking aging, and it seems to me that even if, you know, we live for a very, very long time. At some juncture, there'll be an end. At least an end to the way we know things. But honestly, I don't really think about just death that happens at the end. I think about the impermanence that characterizes this life. That even if we live for a long, 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 long time, impermanence will be a central aspect of that life. So I can imagine that as people start dealing with these living centuries, they reinvent a version of death as sort of a metamorphosis. Yeah. That they died of their previous story so far and and lived know, into it from a butterfly to a caterpillar or mm -hmm. whatever the hell it may be. But that that's a way to manage long survival. Yeah, I mean I, I was I was teaching in New York at NYU and, and this to cardiac physicians. And the guy said, well, I'm not sure that death is inevitable. He's a cardiac physician, you know? I, I thought, man, what's it like to be with you as a doctor, you know? <laughs> see, I don't see it. I, I'm not in a battle against death. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's our enemy. Um, I don't think, you know, more time is necessarily better. Mm -hmm. I mean... There are some wise old people like yourself, you know? <laughs> but there's some people around who are not so wise, and they've lived a long, long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, 
for me, it matters how do I step into this life? Like, how fully do I live this life? How completely do I love the people I love? You know? Not how long do I get, you know, quality over quantity. That's my view. That's a good one. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.